it's time for another episode of Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes. Here's your host, Terrence McCauley. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes, right here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. My guest today is Charles Salzberg. He is a novelist, a journalist, and an acclaimed writing instructor. His latest book, Man on the Run, will be published by Down and Out Books in April 2023 and available in all formats. How's it going, Charles? Thanks for being here. Great. Thanks for having me. Oh, so why don't you tell us a little bit about your latest book? Okay. Um, it, it was born out of two things. One was during the pandemic, um, when I was home all the time, which uh, I had prepared for that and rehearsed for it my entire life, since <laughs> I'm a writer, since I'm 28. Uh, and it was funny, in the beginning, I thought uh, about all those people out there who had jobs and had to stay home, welcome to my world. And after mm -hmm. about two weeks, it was get the hell out of my world because right. one of the great things of being home all the time or whenever you want is that everyone else is out working. It wasn't right. as much fun when, when everyone was, was home like I was. But one of the things, uh, I never have a problem keeping myself busy, but one of the things I discovered were true crime podcasts and mm. I would devour them. I, I dozens and dozens of them. Um, I, I had The only thing I'd ever listened to before was the serial one about Agon site. Mm. Um, and at the same time, I had finished uh, the book I was working on, Canary in the Coal Mine. And I didn't know mm. what I was going to work on next. But I had done a book before that, right before that, called Second Story Man, which was, um, it was nominated for the second Seamus. And I lost both times. So I'm a two-time Seamus loser. But it did win, uh, it did win an, another award, the Beverly Hills Book Award. And it's about a master burglar named Francis Hoyt. And here's a spoiler alert. At the end of the book, he, 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 he gets away uh, from um, any consequences uh, in a very unique kind of manner. And so I'm casting about for a new book to write. And I kept wondering, what does Francis Hoyt do after Second Story Man ends? He can't, right. he's an East Coast burglar. He's a master burglar. He can't, he can't do it there anymore. Where would he go and what would he do? Mm -hmm. And so uh, most authors, and, and you know this, Terrence, because you've written many books, it's that what if kind of question, right? What mm -hmm. if or what would happen? So I thought, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna think about what he would do and where he would go. And at the same time, I, I, I had this, uh, you know, these true crime podcasts in my head. So I thought, well, <clears throat> one of the things he might do is he'd go to the West Coast, far away from his normal stomping grounds. And um, what if a true crime podcaster, her name is Dakota Richards, who used to be a, um, she's a laid off crime, newspaper crime journalist. And she had a, a podcast, a true crime podcast. And what if she was doing a series on Francis Hoyt? And what if he found out about it before it was aired? What would he do? Mm -hmm. So with those two things in mind, um, I started the book. And then okay. one of the true crime podcasts I, I listened to 
was one called Crime Town, which I, I highly recommend. If anyone needs recommendations for true crime podcasts, come to me. And one of the things it, it um, one of the one of the issues that they dealt with is in New England, um, the the mafia boss was Raymond Patriarca, and Patriarca had what can best be called a um, uh, a mob bank, and it wasn't okay. a real bank. It was really a vault where the the wise guys, the bad guys, the mobsters, they can't put their 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 loot in a real bank, um, right. the jewelry or the money or whatever. So they would put it in Patriarch's vault and he would okay. keep it for them. Right. And one day, um, these, these guys are, are um, recruited to rob the vault. Now, usually that would be the worst thing you could do because you don't want to rip off the mob. First of all, they're not going to go to the cops, the authorities right. that they've been robbed. They're going to go get you and they're going to go kill you, right? Right. But the but the hook was that the one the person behind the heist was Patriarcha himself. He was oh, having okay. his own mob bank robbed so he could keep the money and everything. Oh. So that gave me an idea to have some sleazy lawyer contact Hoyt, who he knows is on the West Coast, and offers him a job of knocking over a very similar kind of mob vault or bank. Mm -hmm. And again, he, what, what's attractive to him is because he knows the, the consequences if he does that and the, and the mob goes out, it's gonna go after him. But the right. same thing in, I used in, in fiction as in true life, that the, the mob boss in that area, it's his bank and he's the one sanctioning the, um, the, the heist. So with okay. those two, so with, I, I had those two stories, the kind of separate stories, but at a certain point near the end, they converge. So that right. was the inspiration for, for Man on the Run. Oh, okay. Fantastic. It's amazing how even as fiction writers, we can still uh, get a lot of inspiration from what happens in real life, isn't it? A absolutely. I mean, the first thing I read of yours was the one, the, um, was it called Prohibition? But it, it takes place during, during that year. You know. Yes. And yeah. 1930s New York. That's right. And you incorporated a lot of real, real stuff in that book. Um, and that always appeals to me too, if I can make that crossover between fiction and, and what really happens. Right. Uh, yeah. It definitely makes it relatable. Exactly. Exactly. It does. And, and I would imagine that your diverse journalist background also helps you appreciate how you can take that which happens in real life and translate it into a fictional story, doesn't it? It, it does. And, it, and you know, I, I was a, a magazine journalist for years and years. And I realized when I started writing my first um, crime novel that the that it's very it's very much the same. Journalists are, are following trails the same mm -hmm. way a detective would or a cop or, or whatever. So, and, and actually the, the inspiration for my first book, which was Swan's Last Song, the main character is a skip tracer. And mm -hmm. most people don't even know what that is, but it's the guy who, he's, he's the lowest rung on, the, on a de detective scale. He's the guy who reposts cars and finds people who haven't paid their bills and all that. And I actually interviewed for a magazine story, a guy by the name of Sidney Weinstein, who was the skip tracer. 
So it's just what you said. It's that that crossover. He gave, and when I was looking for a character, I thought, oh, it wasn't Sydney I was taking, but I love the idea of a skip tracer, a down right. and out skip tracer who's the dregs of 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 the profession. Uh, so you're absolutely right. Um, you, you do. It, there is that crossover, and a journalist gives you. You never forget anything. Things are filed with you, and so right. things come up like that. Um, but you're right. Most of the stuff is somehow there's a connection to reality. Yeah, especially because of the, the kind of work that you had Swan do. A lot of people might have gone for ex-Special Forces person or uh, mm -hmm. a, a spy like the Equalizer or something like that. But to make it as a skip tracer, you're, you've already built in a certain relatability with the character mm -hmm. that someone who is Special Forces or a hero cop or something like that, the reader might not be able to relate one-on-one -on -one with somebody like that. Absolutely. Yeah, and you also too, I remember there was, uh, I think it was in when Swan dives in, um, it was, uh, you had a great bar scene in there where it was in, the, I don't know if that's the right book, but there was one book where you had um, a great bar scene where he was drinking in the middle of the day, I believe up in Harlem or Washington Heights. And Paradise it was, it was Bar just, and Grill. That's exactly it. That, that was a fantastic scene. I still remember that one. It's right up there with some of um, some of uh, Hammett's short stories and Chandler's short stories about drinking with for me. So that was well, that was a particularly memorable. And scene. I don't really drink. I know you don't. That's the thing yeah. that kills me. I was like, wow, he got it. He got day drinking down. And I know you don't even drink. Um, what's the difference between for you between writing a standalone and a um, and a series, because as a journalist, I would imagine a lot of your work had to be standalone because it would be from one assignment to the other. And then your fiction, you, you tended to go more towards series. And I was wondering how you approach that. Um, the way I approach is I've never thought of doing a series. So for instance, mm -hmm. Swan's last song, even by the title, it was supposed to be a standalone. And um, it was the first novel, first crime novel I ever wrote. And really the first, I, I had written another, no, few other novels that didn't get published and one that did, but it was an original paperback, is that um, I, I wrote it as a one-off and it was nominated for a Seamus Award. And I honestly, Terrence, did not know what a Seamus Award was. I was not in the crime community. I didn't know any crime writers. And right. I looked it up and I lost and I got pissed off. And I thought, I'm going to keep writing these things until I win something. And that's why I came up with the, um, the second swan. And then I found that I could write about any subject I wanted. I, I don't do um, murder mysteries. So none of the mm -hmm. swans are, are really murder mysteries. The first one has to do with a murder, but it's really not about the murder takes place before the book even opens. And Devil right. on the Whole, same thing. It's, a, it's based on a true crime, but the Murders happen before the book even begins. So, mm -hmm. for instance, in Swan Dives In, you don't, it, it, it's, it takes place in the world of rare books. And the reader doesn't know what the crime is until halfway through the book. And by the time you finish the book, you're not even sure there was a crime. And right. those are fun for me. So each one led to another. So I, I never, it's the only series I've done, really, except, mm -hmm. and, and I'm not calling this a series, Man on the Run. I'm calling it a continuation. Because, right. yeah, so um, I, I sort of fell into that, but I like the character and I like the characters around him. And I, as I said, I could write about any subject I wanted. Um, right. One 
place in the, the, the world of, of Hollywood movies. And so, um, so in a way, everything I write is originally a standalone. So with the Swan series, and there are only five of them, you don't have to read them in sequence because I wrote okay. them as really as standalones. That's important for people to understand because, you know, these days when you have a lot of books that are made into TV series or um, even some long running uh, purely fictional books, novels, they, people are hesitant to get into involved in a series because they say, well, if I miss, what if I don't read them in order? Or what right. if I don't like the first one? You know, so that's, uh, that's always good for people to know where there's a series with they can jump right into any book. And, and with your Swan series, it sounds like that's what's possible. Yeah, but also, Clarence, you know, you know Terrence, the, 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 the hardest thing sometimes is remembering what you wrote about in an earlier book. And readers, right. will, readers who write, read the series will, will, you know, they'll catch it. So if you're doing each one kind of as a, um, as a standalone, you don't have to remember quite as much uh, about the character. I mean, you have to be consistent, but it's more about sure. consistency of the character. So there, there's a little plus in that too. Um, right, right. And, and in addition to your, um, your journalistic background, you've also become quite a writing instructor. And I was wondering, what, uh, what is it about teaching people the craft that has helped you with your own fictional work? everything. I, I'm still learning from my students <clears throat> because you learn what works and what doesn't work. And you also can't just tell someone, I mean, because you, you've been in classes with this doesn't work. Mm -hmm. You have to tell them why it doesn't work or why it works, which means you have to think about it and come up with some kind of rationalization. So I really do learn a lot from my students uh, all the time. Uh, and sometimes I'm not even aware of it. But you're absolutely right. You you, you do. Um, it, it's and if you don't, you're doing something wrong because right. because you're not you're not involved in what you're doing. You, you're not paying attention to what you're doing. Right, because it's one of those things where it's highly participatory on both sides. And if an instructor is mailing it in, the students can understand that, and then absolutely. the whole vibe of the class is off. And the same thing too. If the students aren't really into it for whatever reason you know, then they're not going to get as much out of it. Right. And I have some very, very good writers, too. The only reason they take classes, and you'll find this when you when you start doing it, you know, more and more, is mm -hmm. they need deadlines. They don't they don't write without a class. So I right. have one student, Christina Chu, who had a, a, a highly um, praised book of short stories. And then she wrote a book in my class and she didn't write for 12 years because she got married and had kids and moved out of the city. Mm -hmm. So she didn't have a class to go to. <clears throat> so right. when she moved back to the city and took my class again, um, she wrote this book, Beauty, which, which won a big award, um, was chosen by, um, uh, you know, for this, by, by a, a really big writer as the award winner. And so mm -hmm. um, they're, they're good writers. And they just, when I don't teach during the summer and I come back in the fall, and I asked, oh, okay, who's, who's got a lot of writing? To, they, they haven't done any writing. So, right. um, so it, it is very, oh, at least the way I teach, it's very collaborative. Um, it has to be because it's not like you're teaching someone how to golf or how to drive a car or fix a, a motor. It's something that uh, they actually have to have hands-on experience doing and they have to continue to do it 
Otherwise, like every other skill, it gets rusty. Right, and and you know because you 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 learn from one of the best, Wesley Gibson. Um, so, and and that's the other thing about teaching is is you will remember teachers that that you thought were really good, and you will you will use some of their techniques or the the approach that they took or something from them. And right. um, you know, and, and as a matter of fact, in most of my books, I thank my students because they, they really, and it's not just pandering. It really is that I, that I learned from it. Right, yeah, and it's just like that too with um, even the harshest criticisms we receive from our audience. It, if it's thought out worthwhile critiques, then they have weight and they mean something. If it's, and you, we've all had those where someone didn't get the right book or they ordered the wrong book or they didn't mean to get our book and then they're angry <laughs> at us and they fire off a one-star review. Those you can discount, but it's the ones, even if they're one star, but they're detailed that always stick with me as much as the phrase does. Is I think that's the same for you as well. Yeah, I've got a tip for you. A friend of mine did this. When anyone would write and not like something she did, she was more into film and, and other kind of writing. She would put it in the idiot box and anyone who <laughs> praised her was in the genius box. You know? <laughs> So, I mean, that's the way you kind of have to deal with it because if you take, you can't take the good too seriously or the bad too seriously. Um, right. you, you know, you have, and it's, and it's hard because, you know, I have a friend who um, is a, a playwright and his father was a big time psychiatrist and he must've gotten a bad review about something. And his father said to him, Charlie, nothing is personal. And he said, dad, nothing's personal and everything is personal. That's and, right. And it, it's it's both. You can't help but take it personal, but it's true. Maybe they misunderstood what you were doing, or as you said, was ex were expecting a different kind of book than than you than they than you gave them. Um, right. Right. Yeah. It's, it, and it's important for writers to be able to, and I've, I've written about this, but it's very important for writers to be able to take criticism, um, whether it's good or bad, because it's like George Cohan said. He never used to trust rave reviews. He didn't like to hear them because he said, yeah. I would rather a bland review because then I know what's working and what's not. But in a rave review, even the shortcomings get over outshined by uh, whatever they liked. And that wasn't always best for his process. Right. And when you give your stuff to a friend early on, it, 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 you, you're, you're kind of between two places because they're your friend. So when they say mm -hmm. something nice about your writing, you don't believe it. And they're not, uh, and, and you think that they're, so what, what good is it to give it to a friend? You, you've got to give it to someone who's really honest with you because right. that's the only way you learn. And the other thing is they may be wrong, but it makes you think about what you wrote. And that's really important. Uh, if, they, if they make a criticism of it, think about it and say mm -hmm. to yourself, are they right or are they wrong? maybe they misunderstood what I did, but it makes you think about it. Yeah, and that's what it does. And that's what classes do. Even if you're confident in your writing ability, uh, no matter what level you are, whether you publish 30 books or you've only got one in your head, taking a class will help thicken your skin a lot. And mm -hmm. especially if you, if you do the class the right way. And that's what a writer really needs above anything right. else. Right, you know, and I see it. Yeah, I say yeah. to my students that they will learn more from critiquing other people's work than having their work critiqued because right. 
they have to consider it and deconstruct it and see what works and what doesn't work, which is what I was saying about why I learned from it. So it's mm -hmm. really, a, a it, you know, if your work isn't being discussed, you still have to pay attention because you will learn something. Right. And that's, yeah. And that's the thing I've, I've talked to people about the, the importance of making sure that they can edit their work and see it at a far enough distance where it's not so personal for them. It'll always be personal, but you have to look at it as a product at some point. And they said, yeah, I can do that. I just want to know how, how did you get an agent? How do you find a publisher? Right. They right. said, you need to get one thing done first. And if you can't take critique and you can't look at your stuff objectively, you're never going to get that agent. You're never going to get that publisher. Absolutely right. Yeah, it's an essential thing. Um, it's an essential part of the process. Earlier, you said that you listen to a lot of uh, true crime podcasts. Um, there's also been a lot of true crime documentaries released over the last year. And I was wondering, were there any of those that you could recommend to people that especially caught your eye, assuming that you've seen them? Yes, Evil Genius is really good. And I've seen so many, you're, you're absolutely right that you, you kind of forget, but Evil Genius is really good. And then there's um, the, the Keepers. Um, oh, and, and, on Netflix. Right, yeah, which is really good. And I, I don't want to give it away what, what, it, what it's about, but it's really good. And the other one is The Staircase. And Oh, yes. And it's really unique because the French documentary maker made the series and then years later came back and add because the story kept going. And right. I think he went back two different times year, years later to finish it. So it's now originally it may have been eight, eight episodes and now it's 12. And they've also done the, the fictionalized version, um, right. which was pretty good. But I, I would see the real one first. So those are the three that, that have come right to mind, but I, I know there are more. Oh yeah, there are. And which one was Evil Genius about again? That's about, um, there was a bank robbery in Pennsylvania where a guy was strapped with um, dynamite. On his neck. Went into, that's right, and went into the bank and said, I'm, I, it, it's not me, someone kidnapped me, strapped this on me, sent me into the bank. And if you don't, um, if, if you don't give me the money, they're gonna, blow it up, you know, it's, it, they're going to blow it up. That's the story. And um, I'm not going to tell you who was behind, who is the evil genius, but it's it's fascinating. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. And then one that has stuck out to me over the last few years is the jinx on HBO. Oh, yeah. That one was unsettling, to say the least, especially because you get to, when, when I watch that documentary, you see that the documentarian was actually giving Durst the benefit of the doubt until the very last episode and right. then he convicted himself and uh, I, I actually that was a, interesting I have a connection to Durst one of the I think it was his sister took classes with me but also the other Durst Seymour Durst who's on the level and a big realtor because mm -hmm. of his sister he gave us when we we needed classroom space New York Writers Workshop he donated an office, uh, you know, a, a space in one of his buildings. So ah, I, I never okay. met the other Durst, but I, I do have a connection to to Seymour and um, and 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 the, the brother. That's fascinating. Yeah, the family's done a lot of philanthropic work and, and good work in the city, Absolutely. and the buildings are usually pretty good. But yeah, it's just this bad seed. He he just did not fit the mold, did he? Right. 
he did not. So you've got a lot going on. What uh, can people expect from you next? Well, I'm working on a, you know, I, I do books that where if there's something that interests me, I'll try to spin a book about it. And I've always been fascinated by ESP and extrasensory perception. Mm. So this one, the main character has, has ESP, a certain uh, amount of ESP, but only one person in the world knows it, his best friend. And he's frightened by it and scared by it because it makes him different. It makes him stand, it, it people knew. So I thought, well, what if someone like that who was reluctant and no one knew it about it is approached by his best friend and his best friend's college age daughter is missing. And he asks oh. this friend to help find him because he's, he knows that he has this ability. So right. um, it's a way for me to explore certain things that interest me and, and that does. So I'm about maybe, maybe halfway through that. That's awesome. I mean, yeah, that's that's what I've said in other episodes of this podcast, that it's important for writers to keep themselves fresh by tackling new projects. And we were just talking about documentaries. You've probably seen it already, but if you had, haven't, one on ESP is, uh, that's very good, is um, Wormwood. Oh, uh, yeah. Fantastic documentary. I don't uh, know if you've seen the that LSD? The LSD, the LSD, yes. yeah. Yes. Yes. And a lot of the crazy stuff that went on with that program. And uh, when you think it's not possible, yeah. there were a lot and of people it, who had leverage to do things like that. Right. And when you're watching it, it feels like you're on LSD because it's done right. in a real in a weird way. They really do. Yeah. No, that was uh, that's a good one for that kind of uh, topic. Now, uh, people are going to want to follow you on line to see what you're doing next, to see you on social media. What's the best way that people can keep up to date with everything you're working on, um, Charles? My website or Facebook. Someone did my website and they did an incredible job because it's interactive and there are right. some videos. There were some videos that a friend of mine made. Um, he, he played Swan. And the good news that I had um, a few months ago is, is my agent, my new agent sold all the Swan books for audiobooks. So Great. there's a guy doing that. I think they'll start coming out in June. So that, that's kind of fun for me uh, to do that. So, so either, either Facebook or I, I don't use Twitter much. I, I've never really gotten Twitter, but I, yeah. I like Facebook. So they can find me on Facebook or, or the website, charlesalsberg.com. And it's okay. Charles, S-A-L-Z-B-E-R-G. So they'll find me. Somehow they do. They do, especially Reed Coleman. He's always finding you and yeah. saying stuff. And <laughs> yeah, he's really, a really good friend, uh, a really good friend that um, uh, I appreciate. And I met him yeah. accidentally because I had a story in Long Island Noir and he had a story in it and we were doing a panel together and um, we just got friendly. Yeah, he is a writer's writer and a hell of a person. If you, if anyone ever gets a chance to see him or meet him, I highly suggest you do it because yeah, uh, and I just he, he's give a great one, person. Right, I want to give one plug to the... Um, the, right, the, the crime writing community. And that right. is, they are the nicest people, Terrence. I mean, I, I'm yes. not saying this just because you're doing the interview, but it's been such a pleasure meeting and making friends from all these writers because they're generous. I, I really haven't found anyone. I know there are people out there who are not so nice and not so generous. I have not right. come across any. 
yeah, it really is a nice community. I mean, it, it's not a perfect community. It has its faults mm -hmm. like everybody else, but, but on the whole, it's, it's really, um, people would be shocked that people who write about such horrible things at times can be such lovely people. And I agree. I've been in it about a little over 10 years now, and they've all been fantastic. Mm -hmm. So anyway, well, Charles, thank you for doing this. I really appreciate oh, it. Oh, thank you. And I know everybody is going to be following you very closely and seeing all of the new stuff that you're going to be coming out with. And until next time, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I'm Terrence McCauley, and this has been another edition of Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. And don't forget to visit bestthrillerbooks.com for all the best reviews and giveaways of your favorite thrillers. See you soon, everybody. Take care. You have been listening to Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes with host Terrence McCauley on Authors on the Air Global Radio Network.